This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel. And we are live. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. I hope you're having a great week. In today's episode, I sit down with Daniel Holmland, our special guest, and we talk about syndication. So if you've ever thought about that, uh, if you think it's just a complicated like idea out there, way out in the distance, uh, we unpack what it is and how you can uh, use it for your benefit. But before all that, here is today's golden nugget of the day. Today's gold nugget is start or join a real estate meetup group. Uh, I know it's common knowledge that there are meetup groups in your local area, but Daniel does something that I've never heard before. He actually started a meetup group in his workplace. So he works for Intel Corporation and he started a meetup group there at the permission of his employer. And he attracts a lot of attention that way, a lot of uh, networking opportunities and money partners come his way because of that. But if you aren't in the mood for starting one, uh, I would say at least join a real estate meetup group in your area. Go to meetup.com or check out your local Facebook groups to see what's going on there. So that said, let me introduce today's guest. Daniel Holmland is the founder of Good Samaritan Capital, LLC, a real estate investment firm that partners with investors to buy cash-flowing apartment communities with great equity upside. Currently, Good Samaritan Capital has 1,499 units under management. Daniel also runs the Real Estate Investment Club at Intel Corporation, and he mentors other people to start their own real estate clubs at their place of business. So without further ado, here's episode seven of the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. Welcome to the show, Daniel. It's great to be here, Dalen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, So can you kind of give the listeners an introduction about yourself, why you chose real estate, a little background about yourself? Yeah. So um, my background is that I am a software engineer at uh, a large Silicon Valley-based chip manufacturer. I'm up in Portland, Oregon. And um, I enjoy my job quite a bit, but I also enjoy investing in real estate. So I've worked to combine the two of them so that I can invest in real estate while I work. And uh, I've come up with some pretty good ways of doing that. We uh, we run the Real Estate Investment Club at um, at Intel. And uh, it's a club for Intel employees to be able to learn about real estate topics. And for me personally, this has been kind of an outgrowth of my own personal journey. I started investing in real estate back in 2002, single family homes. And then in the last four years or so, I've been exclusively a multifamily investor. And um, we've grown a decent portfolio in that time, uh, about 1,499 units throughout the Midwest and Southeast. And we, we uh, ask me any question about multifamily. We love working with people to uh, build their own family's financial future as well. Yeah, that's inspiring. And I definitely want to talk about the multifamily side of it and how you progressed into that asset class. But first, I want to just highlight, you know, your an active employee there, and you started this real estate investment club. Can you dive into that, why you started it, how you kind of get around the human resources obstacles there? 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, originally I started it because, um, you know, pe- people in multifamily say that you need to have a thought leadership platform. And so I, I started doing that. It, it, for, for a while, I actually ran a in-person multifamily club in Portland, uh, on the west side of Portland. And um, it was it was okay. You know, we, we'd get about 20 people or so in that. We, we rented a, a room or a space from the, the local library. They, they actually let you use them for free. So we'd just book a room there and we'd all meet there and have somebody conference in from Zoom. And... Um, and then I decided, you know, this this is something that a lot of people around me at work would really enjoy. And um, so I decided, you know what, I'm going to look into what the clubs are at my place of business. And we actually have a fair number of clubs. There's, there's you know, there's like an Intel Choir and an Intel Toastmasters and all, all sorts of clubs. And two of the clubs that I noticed were the Stock Market Club and the Startup Club. But there was no real estate club. So I literally went to HR and said, Hey, I see you have a stock market club. You have a real estate club. I'd like to, I'm sorry, you have a startup club. I'd like to run the real estate club. And uh, they kind of looked at me and said, okay, here's the rules and regulations on starting a club. And then I I contacted, of course, the startup and the stock um, clubs and asked them how they ran their club and who they talked to in HR and how to, to set up a good communication chain so that each guest speaker that we have coming in uh, is verified and validated by HR. Um, and um, we've been doing that since September of 2019. Every single Friday, we have a speaker in. Last year, we had uh, 50 events in 51 weeks. And we're on track to do that this year, too. That's really neat because a lot of people in the real estate community, you know, they say, join your local RIA. Real Estate Investors Association, and that's at some place in town, but you actually brought it into the workplace. So how do you find, I mean, how do you kind of draw the line between, okay, it's time to work and it's time to explore these other ideas? Sure. Um, well, th- there's a little bit of a gray line there, mm-hmm. but uh, what I do is we host it on, and on noon on Fridays. So <laughs> end of the week during the lunch hour, um, and, and other clubs are kind of in that same time frame too, you know, around lunch or maybe the end of the day. So um, there, you know, you you want to, of course, if you're if you're balancing a full time job and you're balancing, you know, a real estate business, which I am, um, you have to give the proper respect to each one. You have to fulfill your job requirements. You have to work on your real estate business, and you need to keep the two as separate as possible. Um, so, you know, at the real estate club, you know, at work, I don't mention my business at all. Uh, there's no solicitation. It's just bringing in speakers, you know, and they're, they're giving educational talks. And so we've, we've had, you know, a lot of really great speakers and I've been really blessed to be, uh, somebody who can listen in on it. Yeah. Well, it's awesome. You work for a corporation that's open to those ideas and allows their associates to, you know, dial in on those meetings. So, have you kind of benefited from the networking from that or have you seen any return on that so far? Oh, sure. Um, so a, a lot of the people in the group are interested in single family home rentals. Um, about half of the people there are kind of interested in the more commercial side of, of investments as well. And uh, so l- like last month I had, I, I, I get about maybe once a week, maybe once or twice a week, somebody emailing and just saying, Hey, 
thank you for running this club. I bought my first rental home because of your club. And, and that is awesome. Uh, I've also had a couple of people come to me and ask about passive investments. Uh, and, you know, we, we just take those conversations outside of work so that we're not doing them at work. But um, they know what I do. And uh, they're, and I hold open office hours. So I, I say that feel free to put time on my calendar and uh, I will talk to you through any real estate question that you have. I, I've uh, helped some people, um, you know, find tax attorneys or at least give suggestions around them. These are some people I know that are good or introduce them to other syndicators. Or I had one guy who needed an asset protection attorney <laughs> because, because of uh, his family situation. And, and, you know, we get interesting stories. There, there was, there was actually a, um, uh, a Muslim uh, group of five Muslim uh, employees that came to me and said, hey, due, due to our religion, we can't participate in a uh, investment that has interest. And so we can't we can't invest in real estate and use a mortgage. So how can we structure something that'll work and give a good return? And you know, we sat down and we brainstormed some ideas of how to form partnerships or what type of real estate to go in. And uh, now they're a group of, you know, five people and they're out there investing in real estate. So that, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a great networking opportunity. And so how do you kind of balance having your full-time job and mm -hmm. this real estate business at the same time? I know you're probably very busy. So how do you do that from your scheduling aspect? Oh, from, from a scheduling aspect, what I do is every Monday, I start the week with writing down my this week is a success if statements. And I'll usually write three to five of those. And I keep them in my task manager and focus on them throughout the week. And then each morning, I will um, schedule my time in half hour blocks so I know exactly what I'm doing through most of the day. And uh, some of those meetings, you know, are with people and I can't move them around. And some are tasks that I can move around. So I'll, I'll list them out and then kind of schedule each of them. Um, and um, usually I work on real estate in the mornings around uh, 6 to 7 to 8 a.m. And uh, possibly after work, you know, 4 and later. And then, of course, uh, just like we're doing right now during the lunch hour, um, I've read a book called Never Eat Alone. And the book, the theme of the book was always spend lunchtime with somebody interesting. And so I, I kind of took that to heart. And now I do podcasts during the lunch. Yeah, always maximizing your time to network or work on your real estate. That's, that's a great takeaway for folks that may work a full time job right now and struggle to come up with the time. There's just really not a lot of excuses because as we can see, you're doing it quite well. So the main thrust of the show today, I want to talk about syndication 101. And um, as much as I want to talk about the networking thing, that's awesome. But syndication is a topic that I think a lot of people don't understand. It sounds advanced. It sounds complicated. But can you explain what you do in layman's terms regarding syndication? Sure. So uh, syndication 101. Um, syndication is just a a fancy term for a syndicate, which is just a group of people that pool their money together in order to buy a property that's larger than any of them could individually afford. Um, and so the what we do is we specifically look for value add opportunities in multifamily or apartment complexes. And you can think of this as looking for the ugly house in a nice neighborhood. 
right? The if if you buy a nice house in a nice neighborhood, there's not very much return on investment because somebody has already put the work into it, already you know got the equity out of that. So we're we're looking for properties that need a little TLC. Maybe the current management company is not doing a good job um, of of working with the tenants. Um, maybe it's they're providing a bad experience. Maybe there's deferred maintenance, which means that uh, there are things on the property that need to be fixed. So a lot of times we will um, find a property whose rents are below market. Uh, we'll do our due diligence and we'll ask property managers in the area. Well, if we if we fix the kitchen up and and renovate it. How much do you think we could get for this unit? And if we can get a rent bump, then we'll move forward with it. And um, so the idea is, is to buy an apartment complex, to put in renovation money, and that might be for interior renovations, might be for exterior re- renovations. You know, you might put in a dog park, a pergola, a basketball court, things like that, too. Um, and then make that com- community a better place to live. And of course... Um, if the the rent is below market, when you purchase it, you can raise it up to the market rate. And that's what provides your investor return. So typically, we buy 100 units or greater, we've got 40 to 50 investors per deal. And um, they, they, they will put money in at the beginning of the deal, we'll renovate the property. Usually after that, we have a refinance event. Um, and then we'll hold the property for about five to six years and sell it at the end of that and uh, give the, so the, the investors will receive cash flow during the lifetime of the property, as well as their share of the equity upside at sales time. Yeah. And I would add throughout the process. Also, they get pretty good tax benefits, don't they? The tax benefits are, are probably the best benefit of it. Um, you know, so for instance, uh, my my first limited partner investment, I put 75000 into a 56 unit down in Houston, Texas. When I got my first uh, K-1 partnership return, or so the, the syndicators will fill out a tax form and give it to you so that you can include it your taxes and send it to the IRS. And that's called a K-1 form. And when I got that, I had uh, $51,000 of depreciation on a $75,000 investment. And that's great because that means that the income that you're making from the property then can be offset by the depreciation and you end up paying almost always very low taxes or, or zero taxes on your investment. Right. Yeah. And that's mainly due to something called cost segregation, correct? Where you can basically break down the components of the building and depreciate them individually. Like let's say there's a refrigerator and you can depreciate that over, let's say five years versus, you know, a normal life or maybe an HVAC depreciate that over a shorter life um, than the IRS stipulated. So is that one of the reasons why you like multifamily investing versus single family is because it provides that same cash flow, but then some bigger tax breaks and then you can pull in other people's money is that yeah, why you like it? That is that's is definitely one benefit um uh, being able to pool people together. Um group investments, you know, are very highly looked at by banks and so you have a lot of scrutiny as you're going through the process which, you know, builds your investor confidence. Um one of the main reasons I like commercial properties though is because the method of appraisal 
is different than the method of appraisal on a residential property. Uh, and, you know, for that matter, different than the appraising a stock or, or a bond or other types of investments. Um, so one of the things that I decided I'm, I'm in my mid forties now and I'm kind of looking with a view towards retirement. And I said to myself, Hey, I've got, I've got some stock now, but I have no idea what that stock is going to be worth, you know, tomorrow, let alone four or five years into the future. And, um, and, you know, you might have a good stock pick, but I've really started to prioritize um, predictability of income rather than uh, growth. Uh, although you get both with real estate, but the, the method of appraisal for a residential building is based on the comparable method. So the, the appraiser comes in, they look at your house, they detail all the things that it has, and then they go find the four or five properties that are nearby that have sold recently. And they, they look at those and they kind of compare it to yours and they say, okay, here's, here's the value of your house. Well, in commercial real estate, which, um, technically speaking, is five units or greater. Uh, instead of using the comparable method of appraisal, you use the income method of appraisal. And this, this is really powerful because what it means is that the value of your property is not dependent on current market sentiment. What it's dependent on is the amount of income that you can produce. So if you can buy an underperforming property and either reduce the expenses or increase the income, you can make that property more value. You can do what's called forced appreciation. And you can Google that term, forced appreciation. There's lots of articles out there on it. But think of it like this. Let's say that you have a, and I'm just going to make up numbers here. You've got a apartment complex worth $2 million and it makes... $100,000 per year. So in commercial real estate, you usually take the ratio of the value to the income and divide it. And that's called the cap rate or the capitalization rate. And so in the case of a $2 million property that makes $100,000, $100,000 divided by 2 million, uh, you get 0.05. So a 5% cap rate or a five cap. So the goal then, if you've purchased this building, is to increase the income or reduce the expenses, although it's usually more effective to increase the income. Um, but let's say that you can increase the income from $100,000 to $110,000. Let's say you've got 100 units. That is um, you know, increasing by $10,000 per year. Uh, that's only $100 per unit you know, over 12 months. So that's only like a 10 buck rental increase. So let, let's say you can increase it by $10,000 and suddenly you have the same property producing 110,000. Well, then if you take your cap rate and you take 110 divided by 0.05, you'll realize that that equals 2.2 million. So just by a $10 a month rent increase or so, you can generate $10,000 more over the whole year and an appraiser will come in and value your property at, in this case, $200,000 more. For every dollar that you can increase the income, the value of the property goes up $20. And you can force that appreciation by renovating it and putting money into it. Right. And so, that, slight, that slight difference between residential and commercial really makes commercial stand out because you can basically not be subject to the whims of the residential market where one bad home or one bad neighborhood can throw off your 
comparables, uh, your the value of your property, you can instead take it into your own hands, raise the rents, renovate the units, and therefore raise the price that way. So that's a brilliant strategy is forced appreciation. Mm-hmm. Let me say one other thing too that I really like about the predictability of it. And, and that is, is that when I look at the market risk of a particular, I'm sorry, the risk of a particular deal, um, I break that into two areas, market risk and business plan risk. Now, the business plan is, you know, what are the renovations we're doing and how's that going to increase the value? The market risk is, you know, how are properties going up and down in that market area? And if you can create a business plan that maximizes the risk on the on the business side and minimizes the risk on the market side, then that means you've just created a investment that's more predictable because you're controlling the business plan. So it's it's uh, it's always great to sit down and consider how much is market risk and how much is based on your business plan and maximize the amount of risk that is based on the business plan because you directly control that. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point too. Um, what I've always wondered because you work a day job, right? And you obviously are not buying these properties yourself. So what does the raising capital side of your business look like? Obviously there's regulations about raising money and you can't advertise like this, you know, Hey, I can promise a 12% return. So give me your money now. (laughs) You obviously can't do stuff like that because it's against regulation. So how does that side of your business look like? Well, so the, the SEC does regulate uh, the syndication business. And in, in fact, the whole syndication industry came into to effect with the 2012 tax uh, uh, bill. And um, although there were some forms of it before, but it, it really solidified the business. And it solidified it by introducing uh, two regulations or, or actually two exemptions. And one's called uh, Exemption 506B. The other is called 50, Exemption 506C. And uh, most of the deals that we do are 506B deals. And so the the difference between the two is that with a 506B deal, you have to individually know every investor that's in your deal. So I make sure that if if I meet somebody new and they're interested in being an investor, we have a phone call together. Uh, I get to know, you know, what are they looking for? Do they want cash flow? Do they want appreciation? Is this for their kids' education? Is it for their retirement? We, we just get to know each other and see that our goals are compatible. And if they are compatible, then we'll put them on our investor list. And uh, a 506B will allow you to include into the deal 35 non-accredited investors. And uh, since we only usually have 40 or 50 investors in a deal, um, you know, that's, that's plenty of space. Now, the, the downside is to a 506B, since we have to know everybody, that means you're prohibited from advertising the deal publicly. I can't put you know, a Facebook ad up, can't put any of those. Uh, 506Cs are a little different. You can publicly advertise those, but they're for accredited investors only. So it's, it's, it's a way of uh, the SEC uh, enforces protections for people who... Um, you know, might not be sophisticated investors. Uh, the SEC is trying to, to, to make sure that people aren't conned or swindled. And uh, so they, they put very strict advertising regulations in place. And you have to be able to prove that you know everybody in your deal if you're running a 506B. Right. So since you do mostly 506B, are you, how are you getting yourself out there? Obviously stuff like this, networking podcasts, but how else are you getting yourself out there to potential investors? 
Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, so uh, obviously, if you go to goodsamaritancapital.com, uh, we've got a web page there with lots of articles, lots of podcasts. We also have our investor club. So right on the front page, you'll see a button there that says join the investor club. And when you do that, you know, we'll, we'll set up that phone call where we can give each other a call and just get to know each other. And then once that's done, you're on the list. Uh, but I, I, I do podcasts. I, I go to conferences regularly, uh, although not so much in the last year. Um, a lot of Zoom calls one-on-one. I, I really like talking to people one-on-one. Um, and that's, that's probably my forte. Um, so uh, running a real estate club at work. And uh, of course, the other way too is that I run a mastermind for, I, for people that want to learn how to set up a real estate club at their place of work. So if you're, if you're interested in starting a club at your place of work, come talk to me and um, you know join our mastermind. Um, we, we do have a selection process, so we, we want to make sure we're getting the right people in there. But um, we'll, we'll help you set up a club at your place of work. And if you have questions about you know, how to deal with HR or you know, good procedures to use so that you separate your business from your work, um, we're here to help you. Yeah, I definitely think that's a way that you can separate yourself because I hadn't heard of that before. And so if you're interested in that, just hit up Daniel there. Um, so I think an episode on Syndication 101 can't exclude, you know, talking about getting the deal, finding the deal, and then underwriting the deal. So before we get to underwriting, can you explain how you are going about finding these large deals? Sure. So me personally, since I have a full-time job, I partner with people that do that. Uh, and so that, that's, that's the real, um, you know, secret here. Working with brokers is a full-time job. And you've got to contact a lot of them. Um, for instance, um, before we closed on our last property, uh, we underwrote 73 other properties. And each underwriting is putting numbers into a spreadsheet and seeing what the returns are going to be. It's, it's like a half-hour process for each one when you get good at it. Um, and, and so um, I partner with people that do that. And they pretty much do it full-time. It's their business. Um, and then when they find a deal that meets our investor criteria, which is a, a minimum of 15% IRR and a minimum of a 9% cash on cash, although a lot of our deals significantly beat that. Um, and IRR is the, internal rate of return, cash yes. on cash is cash on cash return. So can you quickly kind of briefly go into what those are? Sure, sure. An IR, the simplified uh, version of what an IRR is, is just like an annual return over the lifetime of your of your property. So if if um if you have a property that you're holding for 5 years, you count up all the cash distributions and the purchase and the sales for the entire 5 years and find out what your return on investment is and then you divide that over 5 years and that's your IRR. Um, it's a little bit of a simplified definition. If you want the more complicated one, it's a time money value calculation where each uh, inflow and outflow of cash is calculated for its time value um, and then summarized together. Um, but you can think of it like an annual average return. Mm-hmm. And cash and on cash? Cash on cash is the... Um, so we, we just take our income, subtract our expenses, and then we have our net operating income, which is the money left over at the end of the month. And we split that with the investors according to their percentage ownership. And that's the cash on cash. So uh, underwriting, right? Mm-hmm. So um, 
basically we we've got a fairly large very large spreadsheet that goes through and allows us to set up a renovation schedule and allows us to uh, renovate a number of units per month and to calculate that out over time and see what our return is going to be. And if we find a property that meets our investor minimum investor requirements, then we'll create an investor presentation and hold a webinar and uh, invite people to be part of the group. That's basically what we do. Do you have any more specific questions about underwriting? Yeah, I, so I know. I-, I guess underwriting has probably changed since COVID-19 happened, right? So how has that changed? Are you being more conservative? Are you being more aggressive? You know, honestly, we're, we're not being more conservative or aggressive. We, we, we were always kind of kind of conservative. We, we like to have our break even occupancy for a new deal that we're, we're acquiring to be in the uh, 60s or, you know, usually in the 60s or high 70s or low 70s. Um, and so with that, um, the, the main thing that changed. So for instance, last March, in the first week of March, we went under contract for an 84 unit in Bradenton, Florida. And um, that was one week before the pandemic really hit. And when the pandemic hit, it left us holding the bag because our lender came back to us and said, hey, um, we're not so certain about the economic out, you know, forecast. We're going to need to change the terms on the loan. And they, they actually uh, told us that we needed to put into an escrow account one year worth of mortgage payments. And that's a lot of money on an E4-unit complex. Um, and so they said we needed to, to raise that in addition to our other funds that we're raising. So the main thing that happened with the pandemic uh, wasn't necessarily on the underwriting side, although there was a lot of uncertainty. Sellers tended to keep their prices at about where they were. Buyers were trying to buy it down lower, but they weren't succeeding because the sellers weren't coming down. Um, but the thing that really made the difference was the lenders changed their terms. They forced you to, to, to have a reserve requirements um, for, of you know one year to a, a year and a half, I heard in some cases, of mortgage payments. And the, the reason why they wanted you to put those mortgage payments into an escrow account is because they were concerned due to the economy that renters weren't going to be able to pay their rent. And so when renters don't pay your rent, the the property owners have trouble paying the mortgage. They, they wanted to make sure the money was there to pay the mortgage. So they required that. Now, over time, those requirements have come down a little bit. They've, re- they've loosened and relaxed some. Um, so we're, we're getting back to normal now. And there's, there's a lot more activity, of course, than there was at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we ended up losing that deal, though, and losing our earnest money on that deal because uh, the lender changed the terms. We went back to the seller and said, hey, we can't offer you the same price because the lender changed their terms. And the seller you know, looked at us and said, tough luck. Um, you know, you've, you've put in $50,000 worth of hard money on this particular deal. I'll just collect that and, um, you know, we'll go our separate ways. And we worked with them for several months in order to uh, come to the best solution there. But ultimately, we, we did end up losing our earnest money on that deal. Has occupancy been a challenge across your units in the last year or so? Surprisingly not. Um, so I, I only invest in areas that are landlord friendly, which means that, um, you know, there, there was an eviction moratorium for quite some time. And we, we've been really good about working with our, our, our 
our tenants. And so a lot of times our property managers will set up, um, you know, reduced payment plans or, or work with the tenants to, you know, keep them there. Uh, it's only really if the tenant is, you know, ghosting us and not responding, do we move forward? We don't want to move forward. It's, it's not a great situation to move forward with evictions. Um, but just across our entire portfolio, we never saw more than a one to one and a half percent decrease in occupancy. So I was actually kind of surprised about that, to be honest. I, I thought there would be more of an effect, but really there wasn't much of an effect. And, and of course the, the, um, the the checks that came for the government were, helped a lot, and um, for those people that were still struggling, we worked out plans. And um, there there were you know about every month there's one or two evictions per property. Um, that's just kind of normal business, but it didn't really increase during the pandemic, which which is good. Yeah, I mean it's in your interest and the residents' interest to keep them in the property, right? So yeah, absolutely. Any way you can work with them to pay. Or to fill in those gaps, the better you all are for it. So I want to kind of tie a bow on this topic and ask you, what do you think aspiring multifamily investors get stuck on and how do they break it? I think the number one thing that they get stuck on and what I see a lot of people getting stuck on is that they're used to the single family home rental situation where you are the only person involved in the deal. And they don't realize that buying larger properties in, in a syndication is a team sport. We usually have, you know, a handful of general partners, you know, five to eight general partners on a particular deal. And those are all people that are working to make the property perform. So I'm, you know, not doing this by myself. I'm doing this with a team. And uh, I see a lot of people that don't quite make the leap to working at a team. And uh, the other thing that I see is just, analysis paralysis. There's a lot of information to learn when you are going to be on the general partner side and you are responsible for other people's money. Um, as a limited partner, it's it's much easier. You just invest and you receive you know, a monthly newsletter or a quarterly newsletter and uh, a monthly or a quarterly distribution. So it's, it's a truly passive investment. But for the general partners, there's a lot of learning and, and it's also a regulated environment. And so there's there's FOMO for people that are moving from their career to, to this. And, and the best advice that I can give you, and frankly, the only way to get started in this business is you have to partner with somebody who's more experienced than you. Uh, broke Property brokers and uh, lending brokers won't speak to you unless you already own a property or your partner owns a property. So you have to go find a partner who owns a property who's willing to take you on. Mm. Yeah, that's good. So how did... People find that just the ways that we've talked, we've talked about setting up your club, uh, being on podcasts, starting your own and so forth. Yeah. Just getting to know people that are in the multifamily space operators um, and, uh, you know, finding out how you can bring value to them. So that that was, uh, you know, what the way that I broke into this industry actually was I, I found a syndication group down in Houston, Texas, and I offered to do jobs for them pro bono. Um, so for instance, I, I called around and, um, I would find, you know, slightly used appliances that maybe have nicks on the back of them that looked okay, that we can install and get at a cheaper price. Um, I helped them with a, a zero water landscaping that reduced their landscaping expenses. Um, I also created a spreadsheet for them at one point that had the 15 top property management firms in Houston and 10 people at each of those firms. 
And it was quite a bit of research. And we, we, the, we, we, the, the point of the spreadsheet was to, to have like a one sentence description of how you could attract them or hire them. Um, and so it took about three months to put that together and they re- were really appreciative. And I just kept the conversation going with them and did some pro bono tasks with them. And, and eventually they uh, were interested in expanding the relationship and I got to be a general partner for the first time with them. Uh, now I've met other people and I'm doing deals with other groups, but um, finding those first people and adding value to them, that's, that's how you got to go about doing it. Yeah. It's a people business and look where you can add value to others. So, well, uh, this next part of our show, the last part is called the triple threat. I asked the same three questions to folks. And the first one is what is the app resource or tool that has been the biggest game changer for your business? Oh gosh. Besides zoom, (laughs) (laughs) honestly, that might be the biggest piece of software that I've used in my business this year. Uh, and, and the other one, um, I mean, there's, there's so many of them. So, uh, for instance, for, um, uh, for raising capital, we tend to, we use syndication pro, um, and that's, that provides us an investor portal where investors can get their newsletters and their updates, uh, Excel, <laughs> obviously we use that a lot, <laughs> um, zoom. And in terms of apps, phone apps, um, my to-do list, <laughs> <laughs> what to do app do you use? I use Todoist. Okay. That's a good yeah, one. It's, it's a good one. Yeah. The syndication pro, it just, it's all about having that nice interface for the person and easy to use. That's important as well. Yeah. So I've heard good things about that one as well. Um, second, what has been your biggest failure in the last year and why do you think that happened? Oh boy. Um, biggest failure, biggest failure. Um, was it losing your I, earnest money deposit on that deal? Yeah. Uh, although it was, it was kind of an act of, you know, as the insurance adjusters would say, an act of God, <laughs> there was a pandemic. Um, you know, they just hit us at the right time. And, and that, that absolutely was, uh, something. Of course, you know, that never touched the investors that came out of our own personal money right. before we brought the deal to the investors. Um, you know, actually the, we had, we had one situation with a property, um, and this property was out in Memphis, Tennessee, where um, the the asset manager um, used some funds that were allocated for the hallways on interior units. And, and he wasn't supposed to do that. And uh, the asset manager um, went when when so the, the way that renovations work with the bank is that you have to at at purchase time, put your entire renovation budget into an escrow account. And then you have to come out of pocket in order to do renovations on the building and then get all your receipts and show them to the bank. And the bank will reimburse you from your escrow account. Um, so the, the bank looked at this small discrepancy and they said, hey, we want to take a look at your books and we want to you know, basically do an audit and another appraisal on your property. And banks can be really fickle to deal with. They can do basically whatever they want. They're, they're the biggest investor in the deal. So if they want to, you know, stop payments to you, they can do that. And um, you have to work through their process in order to get it back on track. And so in this particular case, we had requested uh, a series of reimbursements that totaled up to 394000 
And of course, you know, we needed that money in order to pay our contractors and, and to pay the, the people that have come in and done renovations on the building. And uh, we weren't able to pay them for a while. And so we, we got together, uh, the general partners got together and said, hey, we need to, while the bank is going through their process, which might take a month or two, um, we're not going to see that reimbursement. So we're in a temporary cash crunch and we need to do a general partner capital call. And so the general partners came in together and covered that amount of money uh, so that the contractors got paid and the people that had worked on the building have got paid. And we, we basically gave loans to the, um, the bit to, to the apartment complex, the LLC that owns the apartment complex. And, um, when the reimbursement, when the bank finally went through their process, it took about two months of going through their process, which is tedious. Uh, when they finally got done with that, they said, okay, everything's in line and we're going to give you that reimbursement. So then we, we paid our loans back and, um, and the, the process continued. So that, that gave us enough to pay our contractors and to continue renovations while we were going through that process. The alternative would have been not being able to pay our contractors and stopping renovations, which both of those are terrible things to do. Um, so we, we kept the process going with a, a short-term cash infusion. And of course, that never we kept the limited partners informed as to what was going on, but we never came to them for capital. And that, that was an interesting experience because it's, it was, um, you know, what happens when things go wrong and how does the team perform? Yeah, it was a blessing probably that you didn't have to go ask for more capital, but you did keep them informed along the way. So that's key. Absolutely. Third one is our podcast is all about helping others achieve freedom through real estate investing, whether that's financial lifestyle or otherwise. So what does freedom mean to you? What does freedom mean to me? Boy, that's a big question. Um, I would say, you know, first of all, kind of looking at your Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, freedom is, is, you know, providing for my family, first of all. And, and then also, you know, providing for my kids' education, providing for retirement and, you know, some travel. That's, that's a lot, you know, of what we want to do. But I think ultimately my goal would be to get to a point where I can, I can really give to organizations that I believe in and um, be able to, to do that. And we, we actually do do that. Good Samaritan, I changed the name of our company just because I wanted to keep that top of mind. Um, so freedom to me is having the, the net worth to be able to help other groups and organizations and to, to give abundantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, I think your tagline, invest well to live and give abundantly. So that's yep. neat. Where can listeners get a hold of you? So you can go to goodsamaritancapital.com. You can also email me at daniel at goodsamaritancapital.com. And um, yeah, email is really the best way to get a hold of me. So I, I look forward to seeing or hearing from you. And, um, you know, you can join our news group or join our newsletter. Both are open, open doors. Yeah, and Daniel would be happy to teach you how to uh, start a real estate investment group in your workplace. So That too, yeah. Well, Daniel, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and thank you for sharing your knowledge. Hey, Dalen, it's great to be with you. Thank you for, for uh, letting me on. Yeah, you bet. Have a nice day. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review. And tune in next week for the next episode.